We're recording. Yes, look at that. <laughs> the, 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 the ticker is ticking. All right. All right let me try Let's go get started. All right. Hey, it's Michelle Fowler. All things in the cosmos have a lifespan. From the smallest particles to huge galaxies, everything has a season and everything does come to an end. And this episode is the last episode of our podcast, Orbital Path, from PRX. It's a show about the cosmos and our place in it. So a lot of things in space really do go out with a bang, literally, if you're a supernova or a gamma ray burst or colliding neutron stars. Um, we don't have to be quite that dramatic. We can go out on a little bit of a gentle note. So um, I've invited our producer, uh, David Schulman, to come back with me to Goddard Space Flight Center and revisit some of our favorite places. I know he loved the integration and test building where we actually build our spacecraft. So right now we are getting off the, uh, the road, going to the Goddard front gate. It's like a campus mm -hmm. out yeah. here. It's like an, old, an older land-grant <laughs> <laughs> university, university campus, is yeah. how it looks. It's, it's kind of sad because Goddard is behind this badged gate. I mean, the members of the public cannot just drive on. Yeah, and it doesn't look like anything you would know. We're just out here in yeah, suburbia. That's right. It was actually part of the Department of Agriculture's like experimental farm areas. Okay. And, and right. in 1958, they gave this to NASA. That was the year NASA was commissioned. All right, well, let's get through the gate. Yeah. I want to see this building. <laughs> Hi. Well, what a scored guest. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yep. Gotcha. You know, every day I come in here, I show my badge, uh -huh. and there's a little bit of, you know, James Bond, you know. <laughs> so uh, I take it right here at the stop sign. Drive like an astronaut. We'll all be a lot safer, right? <laughs> oh, you do not want to drive like astronauts. Really? But okay. The, 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 the few astronaut friends I have are kind of daredevils. They. <laughs> I, I, mean, right? I mean, one of them bought a super duper souped up motorcycle for his 60th birthday. He promptly crashed it. But you might want to drive like an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep going straight. We'll go around. And then we're going over to Building 29, which is where we do the integration and tests. So keep going okay. straight. We're crossing Hubble Drive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no cross traffic, thank goodness. Shoot for the big NASA sign over there. Yeah, so this is too cool. I mean, we're still like a quarter mile away, but just this <laughs> massive block. The big NASA kind of, like, yes, meatball kind of on it. Steel logo. Gray yeah. And no windows. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a giant clean room inside. So, you know, you want to keep the environment as clean as you possibly can. Uh -huh. So, of course, there's not going to be any windows. So we're entering Building 29 now, which we do a lot of the integration and testing the spacecraft. And hey, there's Jen! Oh, hey. look! Michelle, how you doing? So this is Jen Eigenbrode. Uh, uh, Jen is an astrobiologist, and uh, she studies organic molecules in all kinds of weird places in the solar system. And uh, right now her work is focusing on uh, results from the Curiosity rover on Mars. Right, and we did that episode on Mars organics. Yeah! That's right, yeah, yeah that's that was a lot right. of fun. Sure that was yeah. one of my favorites. Oh. I mean, this, this is the place we are now where so much of it was put together, actually built and mm. tested. Make right. sure it'll work in space, make sure it'll survive launch. There's all kinds of ways to, to kill spacecraft back there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go through this. Most of them survive. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's the believe point. Believe it or yeah, not. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you hear them renovating the, the clean room. Oh. That's Okay. Do you uh, want to well, find a quieter you want place to go over here? Yeah, let's go, yeah, let's go okay. somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after we had finished recording, well, you were talking about how you are an extreme kayaker. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and, and how you, yes, you, you, you kayak these, these really amazing whitewater rivers. And you were talking about the thrill of science. Yes, in kayaking, 
there's this sort of a, a good fear. You uh. kind of fear what's coming, but you have some sense of, of understanding it. And so the understanding overcomes the fear where you're working on science projects or even missions and you fear what's coming next with your rover or, or you yeah. know, your lander, your spacecraft, whatever it is. Having those kayaking experiences helps me see through the end. When you say extreme kayaking, I think I remember you telling us these stories about being on the Potomac in this huge storm when there were water spouts coming off it and variations in the surface water. Like it was after, it was after, after a big, big storm. storm. Yeah. The waves were the size of two-story building and right. you're sitting <laughs> on the ground in That's a kayak in a kayak <laughs> right. at the will of the water <laughs> and doing science for you is like that it can be like that so tell me about where we are right now. We're in a huge room. I mean, I mean, this is one of these rooms that's that's so big it kind of boggles the mind. Um, there, there's a full-scale model of W first here. So we were talking about this in 2011. Actually, two friends of mine. I mean, so you met Adam Reese, but the other yeah. person, Brian Schmidt, was my teaching assistant in college, huh. and um, and he got he was the uh, second person that got the Nobel Prize for that. And Saul Perlmutter was the third. I don't know Saul, but um, I knew two of the people who got that Nobel Prize, and that's what's led to this mission, because. Nobody expected the universe to be accelerating. I mean, we knew it was expanding. I mean, we discovered that back in the 20s. But we, we, we thought that either the galaxies would eventually slow down or they'd keep going the same speed. We, nobody thought they'd be speeding up over time. And so we've got to figure out what that is. I mean, that, that's an entirely different universe than we were expecting. And W first here, the model of it is sitting on top of a gigantic shaker table. What? Oh, yes, we're, it okay, is. We're, we're, it, we're not talking like shaker cabinetry from uh, upstate no. New York. No, no, Shaking. no. Like shake the it, hell out of it. <laughs> you're, you're, trying to, you're, you're trying to shake the piece of equipment that you have on top as hard as what it would experience on a launch to find out what happens. Yeah, you want to make sure it survives the launch. Survives. Yeah. So they have a model and it's sitting on top of a shaker table that they made for James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, there's, it, this was an art form of uh, engineering, in my opinion. So we're in this space, which is maybe like six stories tall, Some, open, something like that, right yeah. up there. And then, you know, the, just the, the girders going straight up to the ceiling. It's a big crane. Yeah. And, and then the, the uh, spacecraft. The it's, sp a model. it's a model. Yeah, it's, 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 a model. it's what you call an engineering model, because you, you want to do your first round tests on, on not the real thing, but right. something that's exactly the same size, okay. the same weight and built of the same sort of materials. So, so you know how it's going to behave when you test it. Okay, there's a, a cylinder and then a little bit of a piece of cone on top. It's big though. I mean, I mean that, that's got to be close to two stories high. Yeah, bright yellow ladder so that people <laughs> working on it can get up to it. Yeah. And it's on this pedestal with these four white columns and then it's a table. Those cylinders, they actually will vibrate the table on the very top. So this is not a little bit of vibration. This is a lot <laughs> of vibration. This is like a rocket launch. This would turn your brain in the jello. Because you want to see, do the bolts fall out? What falls apart? <laughs> you want to know that with your engineering unit before you actually build the actual spacecraft you're going to put in the space. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you think about how delicate some of these things are. Um, I mean, the, 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 the one of the instruments that Jen uses is called the SAM instrument, the Sample Analysis at Mars. Uh -huh. And that has all of these tiny, tiny, tiny little tubes for little gas samples to move around in. And they are so delicate. And somehow that had to survive not only a rocket launch, but a landing on Mars. And I remember at some point the Curiosity rover went through like an, an 11G uh, transition when it was landing and it was coming to the atmosphere. 11Gs would practically kill you. I mean, that, that, that's a tremendous, 11 times the force of gravity. And yet all of these delicate little things survived. 
And, and part of the reason you knew that was going to happen is because you, you tested it. That's right. We tested it. And there's heritage here. I mean, we've, we've been putting things onto rockets and launching them for many, many decades. Right. And we kind of have an idea of how to uh, brace little components down, so the little fragile things, so they don't jiggle and fall apart during a launch. We figured a lot of that out. But some of the spacecraft and the instruments that we put on um, rockets are so complex and have so many different little pieces that it's hard to tell if the entire package is going to survive. Mm -hmm. And as you said, Michelle, it's also the landing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another thing, of course, has to survive working on Mars. I mean, there's a higher radiation environment. The, uh, the temperature on Mars varies hugely every single day. But it's then, about but, a 60 degrees. But then, but then down, <laughs> down at night, it's 100 degrees below. I mean, it, it's. Um, it would be comparable to going from the North Pole to, say, uh, here, Washington, D.C. Yeah. All, all in a day. Yeah. All in one day. Yeah. Imagine those types of temperature swings. I mean, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's tough to deal with. So, you want to see some of the other ways yeah. we. Uh, we, 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 no, we I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, let's, let's go through here. There's, there's a lot of ways a, a rocket can vibrate. Wait, wait, what does this sign say? I'm a little bit worried. I don't want to do anything wrong. Critical flight hardware operations. Yeah, don't touch anything. Yeah, Unbed so. children not permitted. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm surprised any children. Don't drink anything. Not, don't drink right, it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's. So there are a lot of vibrations. There are a lot of ways a rocket can vibrate. Part of that is what they call acoustic vibration, sound waves. Rockets produce a lot of sound waves, and those sound waves bounce around. And those frequency vibrations actually can really damage spacecraft as well. So 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 this is our acoustic test chamber. And can you hear the echo? Yeah. Echo. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah, yeah. So, but, so but we're you're, looking you're... at a giant subwoofer. <laughs> that thing Whoa. is taller than me. That's like a that's probably story eight, high. That's probably an eight foot yeah. wide subwoofer. Oh, at least. Can you imagine what a stereo sound would be? Yeah, this gets up to 120 decibels which is actually a sound level that would vibrate apart the blood vessels in your brain, you'd probably die. And, and the doors. Yeah, look, look at, at the doors. doors. Oh. They they're are huge. That, I think that these might be solid concrete, but they're about two feet steel. thick. Oh, but it's like three stories tall and they're a foot thick at least. Yeah. I think that's two feet. That's got it. I've been in good. this building when they have this on and they're testing it. And even through these two foot thick steel doors, I've been down like all the way at the other end of this hall and, and you can feel the vibration, not so much hear it, but you can actually sort of feel the vibration. So this is an acoustic vibration. So it's a test right. for like, it's a different kind of shaking it's, than you get on the, on the table, yeah. right? That's right. It's, it's the sound waves that are doing the shaking instead of a physical jerking back and forth. A vibration. I mean, think about vibrating. I mean, I mean think about putting your hand on a subwoofer. Think about it this way. You could be two miles from a rocket launch yeah. and you're standing there and you see the thing go off, go off, go off, and you're looking at it and all of a sudden, you hear it. Yeah, yeah. That's the acoustic. You're two miles away and it takes and a that, couple seconds before you actually feel it. And that wave is a wave of power. Right. I mean, to me, yeah. that's the best thing about the launch. I mean, it's wonderful to see the fire, the, 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 this pillar of fire it goes up on, but then, then the sound hits you and it hits you to your core. Right? I mean, you vibrate along with it, and, and it, it, it's a visceral experience. You see it, then you hear it, then you feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the other thing, and, 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 and actually some of the things that were going to go by here, Jen's instrument was tested in, um, the, a lot of stuff has to actually work in the vacuum of space, and has to work in, in huge variations of temperature. And, uh, I mean, we, we talked about the, the Mars rover Curiosity, but if you're just floating around in space, the areas of the spacecraft where the sunlight is hitting can be very hot. 
and then the areas on the other side that are facing the darkness of space can be very cold. You could have like as much as a 400 degree variation over a single piece of equipment. This is where we do that test. And this is a giant thermal vacuum chamber. It's a space chamber. <laughs> it mimics the conditions of space inside. It's like a room inside. I mean, this thing looks like something out of a big sci-fi movie it, with it lots really of tubes like everywhere. Yeah. It is a giant. It's almost kind of you know, it's almost kind of like um, steampunk looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, it's the, very the, steampunk. The, there's all these sort of you know, dials and, 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 and tubes going everywhere. Almost, and pipes. It almost look like rivets. That's about 35 feet wide. It's a cylinder shape with all these tubes and everything sticking out. Yeah. That top part, it looks kind of like a hat. Right? Yeah. They, they actually use the crane that's over here and they, they actually will pick that up and they'll move the hat to the side and then they open, that's how you open it. So they open Whoa. it from the top. Okay. Then they'll come in and use the crane and they'll pick something up and they can put it in. Okay. And then they bring the cap back over and they close it. They cool it with different types of cryogenic materials. So usually they start with liquid nitrogen. Wait, so what does cryogenic mean? It means super cold. Very cold. Okay. Very, yeah. very cold. Okay. Very, very cold. <laughs> It'll burn your skin. Uh -huh. It'll freeze it off. Yeah. So liquid nitrogen. We'll start with that and then cool it down. Sometimes if you're talking about deep space and they have to mimic a deep space environment, they'll also use helium, liquid helium, which I mean, I can, it's hard to say just how, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's hard it's to imagine how cold that is. 420 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, the temperature of liquid helium. So, 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 so this cold. chamber gets to under 400 degrees below zero. So how close is that to absolute zero? That's only a couple degrees above absolute zero. That's 20 Kelvin. Yeah. So that's really, really that's really, cold. really cold. Yeah. <laughs> now, but, but they don't do that for every condition. So the thing that's great about this chamber is that we can adjust it to mimic different types of space environments. So for instance, if we launch something and it's traveling between Earth and another planet like Mars, there's that cruise time. That is like a, just a space environment, so we can mimic that in here with the liquid nitrogen and whatnot. Uh, when you get to Mars, it's a little bit warmer than ambient space, so then we can adjust the temperatures to kind of mimic that. And if we're talking about really deep space, like what James Webb Space Telescope will experience, then we get it super cold. Uh -huh. You gotta make sure everything's going to work when it's really cold. And, and of course, they can pump all the air out as well. So, I mean, this can actually get down to the pressures you would find in the vacuum of space. So it's both super cold and Nowhere. as pure a vacuum as you can find on this planet. Yeah, getting pretty close, yeah. And the inside, it reminds me of one of those amusement park rides where you go in, you walk in and you stand against the wall and then they spin it <laughs> and you're like, and you like stick it to the wall. I remember those. It, it kind of yeah. reminds me of that. Oh, I That's what those. it looks like. God, it made me so dizzy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, speaking of being dizzy, you want to see where you can get really dizzy? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay, let's so, go. So, we, we move over here. You want to go into the centrifuge briefly? So, um, here at Goddard, some of us call it the salad spinner. And uh, essentially what it is, it's a room that is uh, a couple hundred feet wide. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they have this giant arm that's in it. It's just like a huge, gigantic piece of steel. It's like a freight train. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it, it really does. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And it has a little platform on the end. So it's on an axle in the middle and they spin it. And when, they, when it starts going, it's like But you have to remember this, this, is, this is like, you know, 100 feet across. I mean, it's a huge thing. So is it like whipping around like every second or faster? I, I, think, I think the top speed is about one rotation about every one and a half seconds. 
and that gets up to near 30 times the force of gravity. Um, and that, that would kill you. Wow. I mean, I mean there, there's no way you could survive that. But they put equipment on it. And that's what they use this during the they Apollo. They don't put astronauts on it. No, 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 no. <laughs> But they do put equipment on it, and they did test some of the Apollo spacecraft stuff on here. The centrifuge goes back that, that, that far yeah. to the Apollo. Yeah, yes. like there was a time a couple decades ago when there was controversy about SUVs flipping over if they turned too, uh -huh. they, they, they turned yeah, yeah, too yeah. quickly. Right. So, so actually, the, the Highway Safety Administration actually did a test in here uh -huh. where they bolted SUVs to the centrifuge and then, and then measured the torque it took to turn them over. When this thing is running, uh -huh. you can hear it a half mile away. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it just keeps going and getting louder and louder and louder. And you're so like, I'm so glad I'm not on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. The launches are, are not that extreme, right? I, I, how, many, how many times the force of gravity would it take on a launch? I can tell you when, when, when you see when you see that rocket starting to move and you're looking at it and you're thinking, way up on the tippy top of that rocket, there's yeah. a spacecraft. And I contribute to something on it and it's leaving Earth. And you're watching this thing vibrate and you're just thinking, your, your, your reference is the very tippy tippy top of the rocket. Cause that's something that you worked on, right? So you right. can reference that. And the rocket is gigantic in comparison. And then you're seeing it and it leaves Earth. You know, like, it's amazing to think how fast that thing is going. It's gone in a minute or two. You know, you can't see it anymore. Yeah, the, when, when you're actually at a rocket launch and the announcer is saying, you know, it's just gone supersonic and that's like a couple of minutes, doesn't take it long, you know, and then it, it basically reaches orbit in about, about seven minutes or so. Takes that short amount of time. So here we have more crown vacuum chambers. So well, we, let's we, talk about the clean room. Oh, the clean oh, yeah. room, sure. Yeah. Is, that, is that the big clean room? Or, well, I mean, or this, this is oh, a smaller clean room. Yeah. This is a clean tent. No, so it's, it's, a, it's a room that has got certain types of walls in it. They control the flow of air from one side to another. They filter it to get out as many particles as you possibly can because you don't want little bits of fuzz and whatnot landing on all of their materials that you're planning on sending to space. You yeah. want it to be clean. Because those little pieces, they can uh, disrupt the mechanical stuff, the chemical stuff, uh, the optics of everything that the spacecraft is trying to use. So people who go in here, you can see here this the tiny little closet in the front of the clean room. What people do is they walk in and they take off all of their fuzzy stuff, you know, <laughs> so they're, they're just down to their basic clothes. And then they put on... Their basic a, clothes is a... Yeah, like their shirt. And I, okay. Like I have a fleece on right okay. now. You okay. wouldn't want to wear that right. in there. Yeah. Um, your jacket. It gets, hot your, in the, it gets hot in those suits anyway. So you, you want to just have your t-shirt and pants yeah. on. Okay. That's right. Right. So, you know, you, you're wearing your normal office clothes. And then you put on this white suit, but you can't just put it on. You have to very carefully put one leg in without touching the ground and then get the other leg yep. in without touching the ground. And then you're bringing it up and you're trying very carefully not to get your, your face touching it or your hair touching it. And you finally get it on and then you got to put booties on on top of everything and, and strap them down. So now like you're in a white you are, bunny you are suit. A total That's what bunny. they call yeah. bunny suits. Yeah. The whole way up and then you have stuff you've got to put on your head. You're yeah. covered. So everything that your body sheds, you know, the dust that you carried with you, you know, your, your eyebrows and your face has like little pieces of skin that sometimes shed. I mean, that's just what we, we are human. That's part of us, right? So that stuff is all contained. So that when the humans go in there, they're not bringing contaminants to the spacecraft with them. 
I mean, to, to give you a little sense, the, the, the big clean room we have here, the cleanest one, is a, it was what they call a class 10,000 clean room. Uh -huh. And that means that in a square foot of space, of air, there's no more than 10,000 particles of dust, skin cells, whatever. And um, right around a human being, the, the, the numbers is more like a million particles per square foot. So, I mean, the, there are parts of this test chamber that are incredibly clean, far, far more clean than a medical operating room. So in a place like this, so like the one we're looking at, they're working on a, a satellite. It's going close to Earth. Um, they can probably tolerate some level of, you know, dust and whatnot on there. But in the future, we're going to be looking for life on other planets and moons. And so contamination control is going to go up a couple notches. You don't right. want to bring a, a, a cell. Positive, right? You don't want no. to bring a cell with you from Earth. You don't want to bring a live one, a dead one, or even the parts of one. I mean, there's no way to get rid of everything. We're going to try. We're going to try. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, bacteria are really hard to kill. I mean, every little last one. I mean, we're, I mean, we're covered with billions of them right now. So, I mean, some of them are resistant to radiation. Some of them are resistant to heat or acid. So how do you clean these little guys off? Well, there's different ways of doing it. One of them is actually using heat, but much more heat than any type of organism can handle. Right, yeah. And we really target the chemistry mm -hmm. of an organism, things that make up the cell wall of a bacteria, those types of things. We chemically try and target that to break it apart and ultimately produce something like carbon dioxide, which is a gas that we can easily just suck off and bend away. Sometimes we put stuff into a giant oven. Viking did this, they're famous for it. Viking actually put the entire spacecraft, everything on it into an oven and cooked it. So they killed everything. But they didn't cook it high enough to get rid of the cell walls. So there's probably dead bugs <laughs> on Viking. <laughs> and if we're going to go search for life somewhere else, yeah. our measurements are probably going to be sensitive to what a dead organism would look like, what a dead bacterium. Because we're going to be looking for chemistry. We're going to be looking for morphologies. You know, we're looking for things that may not be dependent on that organism being alive or dead, or being recent or old. Yeah. So finding a dead bacterium on Mars would be amazing. So this clean room that we're looking at is the easy stuff. <laughs> Sorry. You just can't do any videography in here. Okay. No, it's, it's all audio. audio. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wow. we, we can walk up to the big clean room we were talking about. The, uh, so um, one, of, one of these chambers here, they kind of remind me of a, a giant submarine in a way. <laughs> these, these big blue The big blue things, things where it's like a big round cylinder. The one end of it is a giant door. The instruments that we took to Mars, oh, early on okay. we did a bunch of testing and we heated them up and we looked at all of the volatiles, all of the things that were coming off of our parts to see if we could get rid of all of the contaminants on them. And that's one of the chambers that we use. You can actually stand inside that. <laughs> Not today, though. Not today. No, I think there's something else. Yeah, this is, these are pretty steampunk, too. They do look like a, like an old submarines before they made them aerodynamic or yes, whatever you right. say. Yeah, that's World right. World War II era submarines, yeah. Well, I mean, the reason the submarine has that shape is to be able to withstand the pressure at the ah. depths of the water. And this is sort of the opposite. I mean, you take all the air out inside, right. and all of a sudden the air around us yeah. has a huge pressure. So, I mean, it, it is the same sort of principle as a submarine, actually. Cool. Well, let's, let's walk up to the clean room. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of the, the, the amazing perks about working in a place like this. I mean, I, I spend most of my time in my office at a desk. But when you, when you want to be inspired, when you want to remember really you know, why you're doing this, you can come and walk around back here. 
and they're actually building stuff that, that, that is going to change our view of the universe, right? It's never going to be the same again. And it's happening right in front of your eyes. And on top of that, if you think about everything it took to get to the point of what you're viewing, seeing that movie of the sun, okay, that was probably hundreds of people with all of their ideas merged together doing things over 10, 15 years. Wow. So it's a, it's a monumental effort. And it's incredibly rewarding when you think about you're looking at images of things happening on the sun or on Mars. It's our neighborhood. It's Earth's neighborhood. You know, you, if you live in a house, you don't just stay in the house the whole time. You go outside and you walk around your neighborhood and you see who else is there, what else is there, what's going on, and you want to be part of that. Well, by us exploring the solar system and even beyond the solar system, we're exploring our neighborhood. What else is out there? Who else is out there? Is there somebody else out there? What's going on out there? So we're actually looking at this giant clean room here. So now we've gone up to this clean room, which is huge. I mean, the clean room's got to be, like you said, more than six stories high, uh, about the same width across. And this is one of the cleanest clean rooms in the world, uh -huh. largest, cleanest clean rooms in the world. And we're looking in this window from this yeah. gallery. And it's unusual because you see people walking around without protective clean suits on because they're refurbishing it. They're repainting it. They're redoing the floor. So normally nobody would be allowed in here without uh, you know, a clean suit on. So you see sort of workmen walking around down there. But um, this more recently was where they built the James Webb Space Telescope, the right, observatory right. part of that. I, I recognize I, from, the, I, from the photographs. Didn't I take you here to see it? Uh, yeah, yeah, we were that's here. Right. We were yeah, here. I remember all, and all those golden Exactly, the, the gold the mirrors. That's right, yeah. the gold honeycombs, yeah. I mean, the question about, you know, what were things like when the very first stars began to shine in the universe? We actually think the James Webb Space Telescope could answer that question. Mm. That's an incredible what question. Is, what's the first light of our universe? Right. First what's light. The, the first light. How did that happen? And what was it? How did there's, the first galaxies form? There's actually, if you have the right equipment, like a James Webb Space Telescope, you can actually look back in time by looking back through different types of light. To the dawn of light. To the dawn of light, yes. And it, it kind of leads us to the question, I mean, I, I get this all the time from everything from school kids to Congress people. You know, they, they say, you know, what, why? I mean, it's okay, so yeah, cool. So now we know more about Mars. We know there are planets around other stars. We even know what's happening in the very distant universe. What is that? Why is that good for us? You know, for the longest time, we look up at the sky and you wonder what's out there. You just see black with some spots. Sometimes if you're lucky enough, you see actually something like an aurora. You see some colors passing by. This is the night sky, yeah. right? What is all that? <laughs> and it makes you feel so small, so humble to exist. Where did it all come from? And having every little bit of information that we collect that tells us something more about that, tells us a little bit about us. It tells us about where we're from, what we are, how we got here. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I can't imagine, I mean, as, as a culture, I mean, of course there's the technology, right? I mean, I, I remember I once had dinner with Charlie Towns, who was the person that invented the laser. And um, he said that he thought it was a really interesting physics experiment, but that it would never have a practical application. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, think about that. I mean, in one person's lifetime, uh, you know, it went from, this was just pure physics research. We were trying to figure out if we could get atoms to emit light in the same wavelength, the same color, in a, in a controlled way. 
I mean, I mean, what what isn't using lasers these days? I mean, I mean, all the applications for medicine and electronics and communication. But I mean, to me, I mean, that's all well and good. I mean, obviously, you know, we have the technology because we've been curious. But that's not the reason we do this. No, um, it's not the reason we do it. We do it because we're curious. Yeah, and it's it's a human. It's something that's part of the human spirit. My uh, my sort of touchstone is my my mother, who's wonderful and she loves me, but she has zero interest in science, and I mean zero. Um, I, I, through my life, I've tried to explain the moon phases to her, seriously, like 20 times. Like I've gotten balls out with flashlights. And she's like, I don't care. I don't care why the moon changes shape. I don't care what's going on. And, and she resists it. She doesn't really like it. But, but she says, you know, okay, what, what I get is that the human race is, is, is sort of a super organism. We're not all the same. We have different functions the way there are different parts of the body. Mm. And there are people whose, you know, passion is, I mean, in the case of my mom, it's very people-oriented. You know, raising children, helping people, civil rights movement, uh, social justice. That's what interests my mother. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really know how to handle having a little kid that was interested in the physical sciences. And, but she said, okay, you know, the, the, the human race, I guess, needs that. Not everyone needs to think of that as their passion. But, but the amazing thing about working in this place is that you don't accidentally become an astrophysicist or accidentally become an astrobiologist. You do this because you love it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then you get to spend your life doing something that you're curious about and you're passionate about and working with other people that are the same. And so, so this is a place of, I have to say, a place of kind of safety for me, mm -hmm. uh, acceptance. Um, I, I love the people here. It's like safety and inspiration. All at once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's easy to ask a question, you know, what's in your neighborhood, and you walk outside and you go, look. It's a completely different case when you want to go look outside of Earth. What's it going to take to do that? Jen, th thank you again for, for joining us for this, this final podcast of Orbital Path. Thank you for taking us through the integration and test facility. That was wonderful. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for <laughs> having me on your podcast, Michelle. Thanks for joining us for this episode and all the other episodes of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love you to check out our past episodes at orbital.prx.org. Have you done that? I Orbital absolutely path. have. I have looked at them. Jen has downloaded them. You can too. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Orbital Path was produced by uh. David Shulman. <laughs> our editor is Andrea Mustaine. And special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, Looking to the Skies, back at PRX. I'm Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off. Okay, three, two, one. <laughs> Ignition. <laughs> and we have liftoff, yeah. You parked by the rocket up here? I, just right over there, yeah. There's that, my little blue, blue car. Yeah. Ah, my other ride is the TARDIS. <laughs> I wonder whose car that could be. <laughs>